to This Should Work. This is session 26, a conversation with Amory Thomas, professor at University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and so much more that we'll get into during this episode. This was a really fun interview, and I hope you enjoy Amory's thoughts on play and making for everyone. All right, here we go. All right, so Anne-Marie Thomas, we have Anne-Marie Thomas here today. Thank you so much for joining us on This Should Work. Anne-Marie is a mechanical engineer, a professor at the University of St. Thomas, where she teaches in their School of Engineering, and as well as entrepreneurship and business. She runs the Playful Learning Lab, which I'm really excited to dig into today, and is the author of Making Makers. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for joining us on This Should Work. Thank you so much for having me. So, um, yeah, well, you know, this is going to be, I, I have, so probably about five, six months ago, a friend of mine, um, Andrew Morrison, who went to Playfest, which I want to dig into at some point today, said, you need to reach out to Anne-Marie Thomas. She is the most wonderful person. And I think you guys will have <laughs> a lot to talk about. And Andrew is a person whose opinion I trust. And I... Um, I immediately said, yes, let's, let's make that happen. And um, so here we are today. Uh, so one of the ways that I usually like kicking this off is a lot of the people who I interview, it seems like they tend to do a lot of work for other people. So, you know, a lot of public work to help support other people's aims and interests and goals. But I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about something that you're working on just for yourself right now, something that you're doing an itch that you're scratching, um, you know, something something along those lines. Oh, what a fascinating question. Um, yeah, so I guess personal projects, since we're in these COVID times, I had to re- reevaluate the sort of things that I do for fun. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things that has come up is my daughters and I have taken up building and decorating a uh, three-story high uh, Victorian dollhouse. So that has been that has been one of our kind of makery projects during these times because once you once you've glued on all a couple hundred shingles and figured out what colors you want the room, then you got to decorate it and figure out how to make the little food. Um, so that has been our family new project. Uh, personally, I started taking magic lessons remotely, uh, so have been working on learning my sleight of hand over these COVID stuck in the house months. Why? Why? I have so many questions already about, about each <laughs> um, magic lessons. So, so how, how, first of all, how are you taking magic lessons? Is this like a, you're, you're hopping on a Zoom call? You're doing a video? You're you're reading a book? What's the all of the above? I have a couple of ways. Um, I am fortunate that one of my research students, a young man uh, who is a junior in engineer uh, electrical engineering, Patrick Roche, is also a professional magician. Uh, used to in the in the before COVID times used to actually fly to New York on the weekends to be a magician's assistant and then come back to Minnesota to do his classwork. So Patrick's been coaching me, but I've actually been taking classes via Zoom from the Magic Castle in LA. Uh, and then I'm an avid reader, so yeah, lots of books. You you guessed all the methods. Yeah, it, and so here I like to think of some, it seems like some of these practices. I know you also do puppetry. I think I saw some of that as well, and they they seem to all be different ways of thinking about the world it seems to me and I, i'm by no means a magician or anything like that but it's, it would seem to me like you have to think about people differently when you're practicing something like that is is that what you find is 
which with each of these things, whether it's puppetry or magic or working in a, in, in a dollhouse, it kind of gives you a different perspective or a different way to think about people or the world around you. I never thought of it that way, but I think that's actually very true. Um, I am an expert at nothing. Uh, we'll find that over the next hour. I'm, I'm good or decent at a few things, but I love being a beginner. So I, I have a lot of hobbies that I barely get beyond the intro stage of, but I'm, I'm also very, very stubborn. So I'm willing to be really bad at something for a long time and not give up. Um, but I love learning kind of what makes other people tick and what the, the secrets are of different fields. Um, I've been very lucky in my work that usually they're collaborations. So whether we're working with a Michelin three-star restaurant or we're working with circus performers or we're working with musicians, I love that getting behind the scenes and seeing the stuff that the audience or the diners or the, well, the, the readers never get to see. Um, and I think all these hobbies kind of tie into that. It's the, oh, these things I love watching other people do. Like, what would it actually take to do it? And usually you learn that it takes a lot and you're never going to be good at it. But there's something there's something fun for me in that struggle of just how do I learn these new skills? Yeah, and there seems to be like a performative, is, it, is there a performative element to it as well? Um, you know, a lot of these things seem to be things that, you're, you're demonstrating in front of people. Is there some kind of an itch that's being scratched there too, do you think? This, this is like such a leading question. So Yeah, uh, you know what? Well, it's funny. I mean, the ones I list, sure. But on the other hand, I'd say probably my two biggest hobbies that weren't newer hobbies, but are painting. Um, and I almost never show my paintings, but I, I paint a couple times a week and have since I was, gosh, 14 um, and reading. So I, I don't know that it's performance so much. I'm, I'm com- hmm. It's funny, I'm, I've been a professor for, gosh, 17 years now, and I still get very nervous before every single lecture I give. So I don't know that's that I love the performance, but I do love things that involve people. And so all of, the, all of these different, more performative skills, they all involve interacting with other humans. And I think there's something quite delightful about that. Um, I also am a professor, and as a professor, by definition, a lot of your job involves getting people to listen to you and often look at you. Um, and if you're, whether you're, even if you're leading a lab, you know, if you're in charge, people are paying attention to you. And I've never loved that. I've never been a huge fan of that. But if I'm going to do it, I want to figure out a way to do it interestingly. Um, so learning as many performance tricks and skills as possible in hopes of tying them into my classroom work. Um, I think is actually the goal there. I've always, I've always told other professors that really, if you're teaching an hour long class, you're, you're doing an hour long improv performance. And instead of just showing up, you need to think about what is my costume? You know, if we're, if we're learning about, oh, I don't know, circuits that day, you know, does your dress have pictures of LEDs or does it not? You know, you're making these choices. Um, and it really, it really is all about theater. So as a professor, I think a lot of my, my interest in performing arts, be it, uh, flying trapeze or puppetry or magic is learning different ways to present information and engage with an audience uh, because that that is inherently a big part of what I do as a professor. Mm. So this seems very, you know, inevitably we're going to talk about play um, because that's like, it seems to be imbued in a lot of the, the things that you do. One of the things, so I teach in, in the game design, one of the programs I teach in at DePaul is in our game design program. And we talk a lot about play and, um, you know, the magic circle and how play and games kind of, you know, are, uh, you know, two sides of, of some coin. Um, but one of the things we talk about when we talk about play is that 
um, you know, it's kind of kind of my my thought, at least, that play is a way for us to learn about ourselves or other people or the world around us. And you've even said play is for everyone and necessary for everyone. You you run the Playful Learning Lab. You've got Playfest coming up, which if, if you want to talk about that right now, too, that, you know, that is, is another thing that has come highly recommended um, to me, at least, and look like looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So I, I guess my, my question is, especially since you're talking about how teaching is is performative, um, and it, it seems almost me to be playful. What, what's now that we're we're doing all of these? You know, this is going to date this podcast, I suppose. Zoom, you know, classes and things like that. What do you think we we there are different ways that we're playing with each other when we're teaching now, or is there? Um, is there something that we've lost in that playful experience or something that we've gained or a little bit of both? Oh, let's go with column C. I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's just <laughs> different, right? I, I think I think the, well, I was gonna say, if you look at the definition of play, but then you have to decide which one because there really isn't a definition of play, which is actually start, part of the beauty of it is that everyone defines it differently. We're writing a paper once and you can find whole papers where people just try to do classifications of previous definitions of play. Um, it, it's sort of amorphous and that, that's sort of helpful. It means that it isn't tied to any specific medium or any specific location. There really aren't any rules of play, which means that you should be able to do it regardless of whether you are on a Zoom call or whether you're sending letters to each other or you're in a classroom. Um, it's sort of funny. We, we started the Playful Learning Lab almost by accident in that I run an undergraduate research group. Um, currently, I have about 30 students working on projects. And about a decade ago, it had been the habit of students to say, oh, I work for Anne-Marie, or I work for Dr. Thomas, or I work in the Thomas Lab, would have been the phrasing that was used. And I never, that never sat well with me um, because it's, it shouldn't be about me. You shouldn't define yourself in terms of the professor leading a lab. So we decided we had to come up with a name. And we had to figure out something that tied all our work together. And it forced us to really look at our projects. And at the time, the one we were probably most well known for was something called squishy circuits, mm -hmm. which was a method that we developed for making conductive and non-conductive Play-Doh that you could sculpt working circuits with. But we were also working a lot with uh, circus performers at that point and musicians. And our projects, we never really knew where they were going. Um, and the more, the more we discussed it as a group, it became kind of obvious, well, play is sort of the element here, this idea of being in the moment and doing these things and inviting in new playmates. Uh, so so we, we christened it the Playful Learning Lab, and I think hopefully it's almost been a self-fulfilling prophecy because once you once you name something and you have to set rules to something, um, it drives what you do in the future. And we said three rules. We said you must play well with others, you must be kind, and you must clean up your messes. And those are really the only three rules that, that tie our lab's work together um, is how do we how do we explore things? How do we find new people to play with? Um, so you, you're right. We do have a bunch of projects and conveniently, they almost always have play in the title. Um, we're not so creative, I guess, when it comes to naming things, but they typically come from a partner. Um, one of the things that I is it's in vogue to say that you do collaborative work. However, I've found as an engineer that usually when someone says they collaborate with someone, they've really sought out the person that has the piece of software that they need or has experience with the same method that they want to use. And that's like hiring a consultant. That's not truly like collaborating. Uh, so when we go into projects, we really do find someone that we just want to do something with. And it helps if we don't have any preconceived notions of what that is. And then sitting down with that partner, everyone's got to bring toys because it's a play date, right? You know, what, what have you been working on? What have we been working on? How might these intersect? 
And true to the idea of it being about process, we don't know in the beginning what the project is going to be. You know, we might suddenly end up analyzing truffles for a restaurant, or we might end up, you know, creating lessons and new videos with a rock band. But we don't go seeking that out. Um, we go seeking out people that we truly want to learn from. Kind of back to your initial question, someone out there is doing something cool. How do we how do we merge the things that we do? Um, so that's sort of our approach to play of truly finding the people and asking. And I mean, a question I get very often from other faculty is, well, how do you get to work with all these people? And it's a really easy answer. I ask them. Mm-hmm. They can say no, but you can you can always ask people if they want to collaborate. And it's amazing how often the answer will be, well, yeah, let's have a meeting, let's have a coffee, or and it can turn into one of these projects. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how much the the three principles that you talked about sound a lot like um, the new game, the new games movement principles behind playfulness. And I, I'm thinking of Bernie DeCoven right now, who's like one of my, the late Bernie DeCoven, one of my, uh, you know, he- heroes, I guess, in, in playing in game design. And he, he talked a lot about um, creating space for play as well, creating uh, a space for people to be playful. And, and, the, and the space isn't, it's not a physical space when we're talking about that. We're talking about like a mindset almost, right? And I, I wonder, um, you know, and this is a challenge that I deal with sometimes too. And I, I wonder what you think about this is, you know, we often get students, we, you know, in the, in the school of design where I teach, um, who've gone through a, a traditional K twelve education where they're taught that there's there's a right way, there's an, a, a correct answer and there's a right way, a right way to get to that answer, one way to get there, and then and then they come to college and we need to create this space for them, this mental space or whatever else where they they feel like it's okay to to play and and to tinker with ideas. How how do you go about doing that with your students, whether it's in a class or or in the learning lab or uh, or, or or anywhere else? Yeah, you know, I guess I'm lucky in that um, some of my students actually are K-12 teachers. Um, I teach in three different programs, our entrepreneurship program, our mechanical engineering program, and then in our engineering education program for in-service teachers. So hopefully, you know, over time, we see those distinctions of this is how you're taught in K-12, this is how you're taught in college going away. Um, K-12 teachers are my absolute heroes. And most of them, if you spend time talking to teachers, they really aren't advocating the this is the right way to do it approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of my I mean, one of the best ways, I think, to help our students at the college level is to actually help their K-12 teachers and really advocate for teachers to be trusted, particularly here in the U.S., um, to develop their own curriculum and their own methods that allow them to teach students the way that you just mentioned. Um, you know, there's there we have so much standardization and testing in our public school system that it's very hard for K-12 teachers to engage in very authentic play and the freedom of letting following pursuits and letting interests drive things. Um, So I would say that's the first approach to helping my current college students is actually to go back in time and help their teachers um, and advocate for more trust for those teachers because the, the, the teachers, boy, K-12 teachers again are my absolute heroes. And the more that we can do to empower them to use the best practices that they know um, as opposed to forcing them into teaching methodologies that that maybe don't allow our students to spend spend some time pursuing paths that don't always work out. You know, I guess reveling in some of those wrong turns rather than just looking for the right answer. Um, in terms of my own teaching, I guess the biggest ways are to really rethink what it is that we do as professors. Um, many students are spending an awful lot of their money to, and their family's money to go to college. 
And one of the kind of sad ironies I found of college is that the it is fair to say the majority of professors at a college level, particularly in science, technology, and math topics, have probably never had any training in pedagogy and teaching, mm-hmm. right? And that, that's, that should be shocking when we think about it. You pay to go to college to learn something, but the people you're paying to teach you have never taken a class on teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so our whole system, if we're going for grades, is based on grades given to us by people that haven't studied pedagogy or assessment. So it's all sort of backwards. Uh, so honestly, one of the ways to allow students to explore and make some some mistakes along the way is to really rethink how we grade. And so looking at like competency-based grading and letting students have the chance to retake a test or to do a do an alternative project, an alternate assessment. Uh, I think at the college level, you know, I'm able to do that in a lot of my classes, make them more project-based or make them more student-driven uh, in my grading. Um, you know, again, it helps having been a professor for long enough that that you've gone through the whole tenure process and such. Um, but I do think that that giving students more freedom and really thinking hard about the norms and things that maybe you've taken for granted in how you grade, because at the college level, you're paying a lot of money to go to college, you, you are going to care a lot about those grades. Um, so giving students ways to play that aren't going to hurt their grades um, is is something I'm always thinking about. In the lab, the biggest way is really by making sure that we hire students that are interested in the lab's ethos as a whole, maybe even more so than just a single specific project. I currently have about 30 undergraduate students from 15 majors, ranging from education to communication and journalism to accounting to engineering um, on our payroll. And those students join the lab, they they know that if the project they've been hired for ends up not being something they're passionate about, but there's other projects in the lab, they have the, they have the ability to go work on those as well. Um, so really building it more, considering it more as hiring students who you're going to help with, with their own growth and exploration. Um, even if that means a project gets slowed down a bit, uh, that's something you have to be have to be okay with. Yeah, yeah, you know, oh God, there's so much so much I want to dig into there. Um, my my wife is is actually uh, she started out as a fifth grade teacher and now she's an instructional coach. Um, so I, I I even will tell people that you know I might teach at a at a college, but I'm not a real teacher. You know, she <laughs> she's she is trained and 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 she is um, a real teacher. And I, I have this quote from a, I think it's a blog post where you, you actually say something very similar to what you were just talking about, where you say the expensive college education we are encouraging students to get in STEM is often, if not usually delivered by professors who have no training in or knowledge of learning and pedagogy. And I mean, so that's, that's almost exactly what you're just talking about mm-hmm. there. And, um, you know, the, when I hear, when I talk with my wife about, you know, either what I'm doing at DePaul or what she's doing, you know, um, where in the school that, that she works at, and she talks a lot about how it is so difficult for um, teachers. They, they have so little time uh, to plan, right? They, they get maybe 20 or 30 minutes of planning time a day. Um, you know, they're, they're strapped for resources and, and time. And so bringing that playfulness into the classroom when they have to teach to, standards can absolutely be a challenge. And yet they have all of this knowledge. Um, and I think you mentioned pedagogy uh, that, that is so useful in, in, in um, you know, bringing students into, if you want to call it STEM or making or, or whatever else. Um, what, so I, I guess there's a question that I have off of that, which is what do you think is important for an educator to be knowledge of, not knowledgeable of or aware of 
um, if they're teaching something, you know, in a STEM related field? Well, I think we all need to be knowledgeable of how people learn. Um, and there's such wealth of knowledge out there in educational psychology that can really drive how you present topics. Um, you know, the if you are going to take a position where you are paid to teach others, um, take advantage of all of the resources that you can find to become as good as you can at that teaching. Um, you need to know your content, obviously, but knowing calculus and teaching calculus, being able to teach calculus well are very different. For me, you know, knowing engineering and being able to design a part, it's very different than teaching someone else to how to, to do that part. Um, and, and, you know, actually, I guess that's sort of at the heart of all the work we do at the Playful Learning Lab is how do we re how do we rethink these topics? How do we, how do we look at new and novel ways to bring learning experiences, particularly people that haven't typically had them? Um, so I, you know, I'm thinking, Right now, we're doing a lot of work in the deaf and hard of hearing community. We've partnered for about the last seven years doing an after school um, engineering and STEAM, whatever you want to call it. Lots of engineering, lots of making things, lots of laughter. But with children who are um, deaf and hard of hearing at a school uh, here in St. Paul called the Metro Deaf School, we've been doing that project now for about eight years to the point that we even have a second branch of it um, at our state boarding school for deaf children. But then when COVID hit, uh, these teachers that you mentioned, not, not only do they have very little time to prep, now they're doing it all online. So the Playful Learning Club spent a lot of the summer creating online modules and a remote summer camp for deaf children so that they could still be tinkering and making and sewing and painting and exploring nature, even if they couldn't go to their own summer camps. Um, you had earlier mentioned Playfest. Well, Playfest honestly started as a joke on Twitter. Um, this we we back when COVID hit in March um, on March 16th, myself and Carly Shiraki, who's a kids TV host and dear friend, we started a daily call in for teachers um, to have teachers anywhere in the world join a Zoom call for 30 minutes, start with a deep breath, end with a deep breath, but then just share concerns or questions or what was going on in their country or their city. Um, and that actually is still going. Playline is still going now. Uh, gosh, you know, 10 months later, nearing a year in March. Uh, every day, teachers are mostly U.S. teachers, but we often have some friends from Thailand or Australia or Canada join us. Um, and the we found that that was so useful, being in community and looking forward to seeing others who are doing similar things to us. We said, well, what if we just threw like a conference this summer so that all of us teachers, especially UK 12 teachers, had some time to just learn new things and revel in the wonder of the world. Um, and six weeks later, we had over 500 people registered for a one day event with 20 speakers ranging from OK Go's Damian Kulash to author Mary Robinette Cowell, and then workshops from teachers and educators around the world where people via Zoom, you would ask, can we still play on Zoom? We can totally play on Zoom. 45 minute workshops where people created art or people created poems or people learned how to draw with a Disney Imagineer. Um, and we had such great feedback from this conference, which again was run by my undergrads with like really three weeks warning um, that we're doing it again. Um, so here in 2021, January 29th and 30th, it's a two day conference, just like before it's free for everybody. Um, and we will have speakers from around the world, from South Africa to Germany to California. And we've got singers and musicians, but we also have writers and community organizers and teachers and a math magician. And all of these things, you know, what connects them? That sounds like a random list. It's, it's that these people are taking topics, for example, Art Benjamin taking math 
and, and bring, applying magic to it or storytelling and how can you apply the story telling techniques of a puppeteer to your own classroom on Zoom. Um, we don't have a, have a grand you know, results that we're hoping for from this, but instead it's all about how do we build community because it's really hard to be playful if you're all by yourself. So how do you, how do you meet others and play with them? Hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems like a lot of the, there's a, there's, I'm trying to find the common thread that, you know, and I don't want to just default to play that runs through a lot of the, the things that you do, but you just said something there that, that made me think of, um, what did you say? There's no, there, there, there might not be, it was something around there might not be an end goal or something like that to any of the workshops. Do you, do you think that, so like, there's kind of a, What's interesting is that play and games in, in German, there's a word for, that means both of those things, spiel, but we draw a distinction between the two things here, right? Between what a play and, and what, a, what, a, what a game is in, in the English language, at least. And, and games, you know, typically we think of as things that might have end goals. And so do you, do you find a lot of your work is addressing like the removal of that end goal so that you can just kind of, people can exist in this place of playing with you know, different ideas and, and playing with people who uh, might embody those different ideas? Yes, I thought, absolutely. Um, in the English language, right, we use play in many different ways. You can play an instrument, you could play a sport, you could perform as a thessian in a play, or you could just go play with your friends. And, if, and each of those is so different. Um, when we look at something like playing a sport or playing a piece of Mozart, um, to me, those don't necessarily have the open-ended um, traits of the sort of play that we do in the Playful Learning Lab. I, I am a classically trained musician. Um, I appreciate that. But playing an instrument is very different than playing pretend. Um, because with the open-ended play, right, we don't know what the end goal is. And similarly, playing soccer, you're trying to win and you're doing the same drills over and over and learning to work as a team. And that's incredibly valuable, but not quite the type of play that, that we're seeing when we tell you to take a box of materials and turn them into something, you know, or mess around with them and see what you can do with them, tinker with them a bit. Uh, so yes, that, that the word is, the word is um, challenging in its multifacetedness. But for us, we really do often look at play as this inviting people to kind of lose themselves in the process and the moment. Um, we do this, you know, and I guess one of our one of our big projects right now, um, we work very, very closely with the American rock band OK Go. And OK Go is known for elaborate music videos. And their music videos often take dozens, if not 150 takes for them to get these right. But the guys get to their music videos by playing with an idea for a long time first. They have one where they're in microgravity on a plane flying parabolas, and they have an elaborate, beautiful music video for a song called Upside Down and Inside Out, where they're dancing and spinning seemingly floating through through the plane while well, they are floating through the plane in microgravity, uh, making a mess and bursting paint bubbles and throwing things at each other. They actually spent a good chunk of their budget renting a plane that would let them do parabolas and just testing stuff and messing around with it. They didn't plan it all first. They decided they were going to do something in microgravity and they were going to go and they were going to play with it and just see what happens and then take the learnings from that playtime to then apply it to their finished project product, which was very, very closely choreographed and, and worked on. But the more I work with that band, the more I see that that part of their process is so important. They're just messing around with stuff and just seeing where it goes hmm. um, and knowing that you'll get somewhere if you need to, but not being overly concerned about knowing, knowing the ending 
at the beginning. Yeah. So I was at um, a conference a couple of years back, uh, the Higher Education Makerspace Initiative, run by, I know you have some thoughts on this, uh, the makers are from MIT. Um, <laughs> but we, we can, we can, uh, I'll, oh, I'll I love us. Now, to be clear, I love the people. I do not like the using of the word czar. To I know, right, yeah. The people and the work is amazing, but yes, I do have problems with czar as your term. Yeah. There's got to be a better term than that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I agree with that as well. Um, but it's one of the things that somebody had mentioned at the conference, uh, as my doorbell rings in the background, um, was that there seemed to be some kind of happiness that, that people derive from making and working with their hands. I, I think it goes beyond that. I think some of the things that you're talking about with, with play um, have a lot in common with tinkering and, and making. They're the same thing, just different formats, or maybe not even different formats. But when they were talking about how happiness, you know, com- comes out of these um, these acts, you know, making or, or tinking or playing, I, it kind of made me think of, you know, the idea of flow state where, you know, you had mentioned losing yourself. You begin to lose yourself when you're working on these things. Um, and so I wonder if there's if, if you see any connection between this idea of of um, playing and getting into this this flow state and, and what that where that gets us. What do we get out of that, or what is the what is the the nugget of truth or or, or 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 goodness that we get out of out of that process? Absolutely, and I think the, the research on on flow is very tied to what we see in play, um, and I think it is that losing yourself. Um, sometimes companies try to adopt playful trappings, uh, the beanbag chairs or the colorful signs or such. If you're using play as a way to get to a specific end, it becomes a lot. It, it, it becomes inauthentic to me. Actually, there's some great research on companies that adopt things that look like they're very playful, but if they're not presented earnestly and truly in the right spirit, they they don't they don't really lead to new creativity or employee happiness and all of that. Um, so I do think that that idea of allowing people the time to lose themselves in things, which is very scary if you're a company. Right to tell people, oh, go do this, and we don't know if anything will come of it, but but just go take that time and explore. But again, that's where ideas come from. And if we're always working, assuming I, I use this a lot when I teach, I teach a class on engineering design for educators, and it's about how do you create engineering design challenges for your students. If you're going to teach engineering design, how do you how do you come up with those challenges? And it's actually incredibly difficult to come up with good engineering design challenges. Um, and one of my homework questions to the teachers is, is it possible for a student to pass your class, or maybe I even say get an A in your class if you're required to do grading, if their project doesn't work? And it's actually often leads to some fascinating discussions. Like if you're doing a mousetrap car thing and someone's, or someone's bridge breaks or the car doesn't go, like can they still get a great grade in the, in the project? Mm. And... I always say, well, then what were you, what are you grading on? What part of this process are you grading on? Because if you have to make your thing work, that means you are, you are narrowed, you're narrowing your, your possible idea space to things that will work. And if you look at companies like Google's um, Google X, right, they, they often try business ideas that go nowhere and kind of get shut down. Um, If a major company can do that, 
you know, why are we not letting our students sometimes try to build something that doesn't work? If they, if they, the goal is that the, the thing they build has to work, then they can't really reach far and really push the envelope because they have to stay in that safe space. Similarly, how can a student know if something's going to work until they've built things that don't work and learn their own limits? Um, but it becomes a very sticky question as if you're giving a project in a class and there, can, can you design an assignment where you can pass even if your thing breaks or doesn't work at the end? Now, if we're teaching a woodshop class and you're building a chair and it's all about strength, well, then yes, the chair better hold someone up. But if it's a design class, maybe we as instructors have to go back to what are we really trying to teach? What was the learning objective here? You know, there's some interesting tensions that, you know, at least I'm seeing um, here between kind of how, how um, between modernism and postmodern thought, you know, modernism being the idea that there are objective standards that reality can be measured by. And then, you know, these ideas in postmodernism, um, you know, where where we construct reality either through language or or um, through other things. There's actually a, a, a gentleman who graduated from DePaul in a, he's, many, many years ago. His name's Graham Harmon. Um, and he invented this this kind of new school of philosophy called um, object-oriented ontology that works to, to marry these two things together, these tensions between modernism and, and postmodernism. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who consider themselves object-oriented ontologists now. One, and and they, it was somewhat surprising, I guess, to me, or, or a thread that I've noticed that connects it is a lot of those people also teach in um, game design and in very play-oriented fields. So Ian Bogost being a notable one that you might recognize. Um, you know, I, I, so there's this tension here. I, 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 you know, I wrote a certification a while back for a company called Caterpillar, <laughs> uh, the, which I realize is ridiculous saying a company called Caterpillar because it's, it's just Cat, Caterpillar, right? That big yellow truck company. Yeah, yeah, where, sure. Where they were trying to, um, they built this space. They built this space for their employees to kind of experiment in, but the employees were afraid of using the space because they didn't want to look like they were goofing around, right? And so there, there is this interesting tension at these companies where they want people to think creatively and they want to build spaces where people, you know, can can tinker around. But then the, the people themselves are afraid um, to, to, to use those spaces, uh, you know, and, and so I hear that in, in a lot of what you're talking about. And similarly, you know, I have a friend um, who I've actually done this podcast with who runs a makerspace at Lane Tech. I mean, I think even this was in the podcast, he had said, if somebody at his institution ever asked him to measure how he measures his, how his students are succeeding, he'd be in a lot of trouble because, because he measure he, he doesn't, there aren't strict measures for any of that. Um, so it's, it, it's an interesting tension and I wonder how we go about addressing that or, or um, acknowledging that, you know, both in, in these corporate institutions, but at, 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 at schools. And I, I don't know how, how much of a question I have in here, except um, if you have the solution, I would love it because <laughs> because it, it seems like such a huge challenge that a lot of folks, including myself, are are, are asking right now. Yeah, I mean, sadly, I, I don't. I think it's on a it's on a case by case basis how you handle that at your own institutions and how much you push back about against things. Um, I remember we had a guest teacher in my engineering education class. We had a teacher, um, amazing makerspace teacher from New York. We had him speak to the students the students being teachers. And one of the teachers asked, well, how do you grade your students? And he said, I give them all A's. And that shut that down. <laughs> the teacher's like, I'm not allowed to. 
like, all right, we got to figure out a way to do this. Um, and, you know, I mean, maybe this is overly optimistic, but I think a lot of things are going to change in education um, with this reset that we're in the middle of with COVID and maybe some expectations that have changed. And those of us in positions where we can voice things and push things, I think we really do have to help fight for teachers who are doing things differently. And, and you know, maybe maybe the traditional grading system of things doesn't actually work. Maybe, maybe we have to look at different ways of assessing how our kids are doing and how our students are doing. You know, Graham Harmon, the object-oriented ontologist I was mentioning, uses this um, old Islamic proverb that I really like when he's explaining um, speculative realism or triple O. And it's that um, a flame, when it's, it's engulfing, I think it's like a cotton moth ball or something like that, it only understands the properties of that, that ball that make it flammable. And so that's not to say that there aren't other qualities that one can understand from those things, but that you as an individual only perceive certain qualities of things based on, you know, your capability to understand that reality. And I find that connected to, to some of what we're talking about here in some strange way, because, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways to measure or to understand things and standards are, you know, the, the standards that we're kind of alluding to here in, in education are, are only one of the, the ways to, to measure that. And there are, you know, perhaps many, many other ways to, to go about that. Um, so I wonder if is, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you do magic. Um, you're a classically trained musician. Uh, you're making doll houses. If, if, if this is really an, an exploration in, um, under, you know, seeing those different facets, understanding the different qualities of the things or the people or the environment around you, if you're, are, are you, what do you gain from that? Are you getting like a better picture of, of the world, of the universe around you? Um, or just, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it's just a lot of fun. And I am incredibly fortunate to have the resources of time and money to be able to pursue hobbies. Um, but I mean, I think you're right. I think as someone whose primary focus on teaching tends to be a design and the idea of creating things that have never been. Um, I spend a lot of my time telling my students that they have so much in common with storytellers, right? We just, it's, it's, you are creating and taking an idea and bringing it to life using the tools at your disposal. And if you're a writer, those are, that's grammar. And if you're an engineer, that's metallurgy and math and science, but you still need those ideas from somewhere. And the ideas have to come from all the other stuff in your life. And the more stuff that you can cram into your life, um, the more, the more reference points you have to touch on. I mean, it's why I, I, I'm an MIT Caltech trained engineer. Those are very, very STEM focused schools. But all of my teaching, I, I started as a professor at an art school in California. And I have now been since 2006 here at the University of St. Thomas, which is a liberal arts university. And that's not by chance. Um, it's that I really don't know how you do creation of new things in isolation. Uh, you need to be just constantly bombarding yourself with new ideas and different ways of looking at the world. Um, I mean, honestly, my biggest hobby is that I read voraciously. Um, I try to read at least a book a week if I can, if not two. And they're from all different genres because I never know how these things will influence something later on in a project. Um, and something that was told to me by, you know, 20 years ago on a boat, I was trained as an ocean engineer. So 20 years ago on a research vessel in Greece looking for a Byzantine shipwreck. I mean, there were things I learned on that boat from archaeologists that, are actually relevant to me now when working with dance troops. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's that just that not privileging any type of knowledge over any other. And in this day and age, the like sheer and ridiculous joy of everything being, well, not everything, but a lot of things being accessible. Um, you know, I, I'm heart sick that I can't go to flying trapeze and I miss that immensely, but like, okay, let's learn magic or let's spend some time taking art classes remotely. Or, you know, that is, that is an option that I wouldn't have had 20 years ago if this had ha happened then. Um, so, I mean, I, I could probably come up with some lofty reason for doing it, but really the main reason is it's just fun. And that in my experience, the more random things I learn, the more things I can pull together later into some, you know, messy melange of ideas. Hmm. So you're, you're talking about experiences in life and not just being in isolation. And it reminds me of constructivism and constructionism and these ideas of, um, you know, the experiences that you, you bring in kind of inform how you think and learn. And also with constructionism, at least, you know, you have these ideas um, where it, you, you need to share what you're doing, right? You need to work with other people with what you're doing. I wonder what... One of the things that um, has been a challenge, I think, for me at least, is is that right now there aren't as many opportunities for these kinds of random collisions where you can share your work and, and more importantly, I think, see what other people are, are doing. Um, and Playfest seems like one great way that's creating some of these random collisions. But, you know, it, we, we have to kind of like intentionally be at Playfest or be at class where these collisions can happen. How, how do you think we're going to be, how, how do we go about facilitating these kinds of random, um, you know, playful uh, experiences where students can, can see what other people are doing and share what they're doing with other people um, when, when at least right now, it, for, and again, I'm just speaking from my own experience, th things seem so, um, so you have to be so intentional about it and it can't just happen to you. Well, I mean, I think that's fair. I think you have to be intentional about it. And, you know, we we become sort of what we prioritize. And so if being exposed to new ideas is a key part of what you think is important, then you have to actively seek out opportunities to do that. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, so a personal project of mine that's now in its seventh or eighth year, I don't know which, was a while back, seven or eight years ago, um, a friend gave me a lovely gift and, and it was so impactful and so meaningful. I decided I had to find a way to return the favor, but this person had just sold a company and there really wasn't anything I was going to buy that would be meaningful for them. And I realized that what, what would be best would be to find a way to introduce them to incredible people in a meaningful way. And the first thought was, well, we could do like an online Google hangout book club. But then I realized that my friends would all just lie about reading the book probably because they were all so busy. So that wouldn't work. And so instead, what I created um, was something called a salon. And I invited I someone else who had been there at the, the, the dinner that had been this gift. Um, I asked him to co-host with me. And between the two of us, we made a list of 10 of us that we were going to invite. So eight other people, including this friend who started the whole ball rolling. And they had to be people that we didn't know all that well, but we wanted to know better. And ideally... The other guy's list and my list, his list are people that he knew, but I didn't know and vice versa. And then we invited them and said, well, for the next year, we'd like to meet once a month for 90 minutes online. And all you have to do is promise that you'll do your darndest to come each month, but also that you'll host once. And when it's your turn to host, you have to mail a box to everybody else in the group. And we won't open those boxes until we meet that evening. And then we'll open them and you'll lead us doing something with that box. And 
we did that for a year. And then at the end, everyone could go off and start their own salon because it ends after a year. Though actually I do have a group that's going rogue and they're going into year two. Um, <clears throat> and I picked someone else from that group to be a co-host the next year. And we did the same thing. And then 10 more people and then 10 more people and then 10 more people. And in those boxes, we've had ministers, oh, sorry, not in the boxes, in the participants, we've had ministers, we've had musicians, we've had artists, we've had professors, we've had writers. But then in the boxes, we've had people send food or crafts projects. A biologist once sent everyone... Um, dead mice and scalpels. We had people send, we had people send miracle berries and sour foods. We've had people teach us how to code. We had an editor send us writing to all edit and then discuss our edits. And it's 90 minutes and there's not a lot of work you have to do in prep, right? But in those 90 minutes, you were exposed. If you agreed to participate, you were exposed for a year to a new idea and a new person leading it every month. And the best part was that these are people that really aren't in the same circles. Mm -hmm. Right. The bubble artist circus performer probably doesn't go to the same conferences as the you know mathematics professor or the writer. But in this group of, you know, I can't even say friends because I actually my new salon started two weeks ago and nobody in the group knew more than well, except for me. I knew eight of the 13, but nobody else knew more than like four. You had this trust of just I'm along for the ride. Let's open the package. Let's do something. Um, so for me, that's how I've curated making sure that I still meet interesting people. Um, is by being, I mean, there are days when I really don't want to do salon, I'd rather go to bed, but I know every month I have this chance to just, in my pajamas, you know, be with other people, learn something, do something. I'm really bad at some of the stuff. The time we've done origami, like mine's always a mess, but I had to do it for that 90 minutes. Um, and I got to hear the cool stories behind it from the marine bile, you know, that, um, that sort of thing. Reading books by people that you don't know and going to the random online gatherings. I mean, these days there's really no excuse for not going to some random conferences because especially if they're free, you can do it in your pajamas and you know, fuzzy slippers. Right. I have, a, I have a question that is really not germane to anything in particular, but how does one, I'm very curious how one hides a dead mouse uh, in a box so that such that people won't know that it's in there until they've opened it. I am assuming oh, she, yeah, so it's that woman who is also who is an amazing engineer, but also a taxidermist. Um, she um, did um, vacuum sealed bags. Ah, okay. We have a rule, no dead animals. And also, if you're going to teach us things that involve sharp objects, you probably should warn us not to bring them through the TSA. We learned that with the person who led the whittling workshop. But, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had to explain some of my electronics projects when I'm going through, uh, through TSA in the past. Um, I mean, keep in mind that I, I, I developed a way to make Play-Doh circuitry. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I've been held by Bomb Squad and the TSA. If you're going to fly to D.C. for a conference that's held at the White House and you've got a Play-Doh flag. And yeah, it, it similarly, we were working on a project with a pastry chef and we had to fly internationally with one suitcase full of different powders and one suitcase full of electronic bits because it was an interactive cake. Yeah, I have I, 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 I empathize because. Travel. We when I hire new students in the days when we used to travel, we would do a whole workshop on how to travel with playful learning lab equipment, because our equipment is always so bizarre that it's important that my students have been trained on how to travel with our stuff before they do. And we have a wall of the TSA, your bag has been checked, uh, flyers that they put in. We have I have my students sign what trip they were on and their name and the date, and we keep a keep a wall of those. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, that <laughs> these are unique problems that not uh, not everybody gets to face, I suppose. But they're they're. <laughs> but once you start dealing with the unique problems, they become your mundane problems. 
Um, yeah, you know, I was talking to a 20 year old education student from the lab yesterday. I'm like, you totally thought college was going to involve wordsmithing and editing, you know, writing by a rock star and then, and then, you know, how to ship the cake or something. Yeah. It wasn't what she had in mind for her undergrad, but she's okay with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so I want to I want to shift gears and make sure I get to ask a, um, I have a couple questions that I'd really love to to hear what, what your thoughts on. So you have a book called Making Makers. You know, there's these there are these ideas, of, and it was published by Make Magazine um, as well. Uh, you know, we we have these ideas of maker movement. Um, you know, preceding the maker movement and probably informed it, it informed it a lot. You have the arts and crafts movement in the early 20th century. Um, which is, you know, a, a reaction to, you know, industrialization and, you know, kind of wanting to take back, um, you know, the, the handmade thing that the individual and putting the individual into the objects that they make. Um, Pi talks a lot about this as well in some of his books. But anyways, uh, I, I wonder, so it, I, 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 th- I like to think of it as, as a lineage kind of, right? Like there's mm-hmm. this, this progression of things. And I, I wonder, you know, if, if we're in this moment where we can call it a maker movement or, or whatever else, I, I, I hesitate to say it's a maker movement because it, I, I don't know why I hesitate to say it, actually. Um, is it, you know, where are we at now and where do you see us kind of this, this whole thing heading? What's, what's next, if anything? You know, I mean, I, hopefully at the end of the day, it really is all about holistic education. You know, you mentioned a lot of the historical underpinnings. I, I will admit that a lot of my thinking about education is heavily influenced by the writings of John Dewey um, and the early you know, turn of the century lab school in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's about empowering people to learn by doing. Um, but if you look at Dewey's writings, it's all about uh, education for citizenship. Right. I mean, that was that was the whole idea of the laboratory school was training students to be citizens of this world, um, however you want to define that. Um, and I think that that's an important thing, right? It's not about teaching them these individual subjects. It's about the fact that if you're teaching young folks, you're hopefully giving them the skills to live a enjoyable and I don't even want to say productive, a good life, however they're going to define it. And so I think there, yeah, it probably is a lineage. I mean, is it great that things are called maker for now? Sure, because there's grants for that and teachers can get grants for that. Um, I actually left academia for a while to be the founding executive director for Maker Ed, the nonprofit. And I remember talking to teachers who were debating, well, is this STEM or is this STEAM or is this making? And I usually kind of said, well, what is the grant asking you to call it? Because at the end of the day, they're all tied to the same things. So it's okay for your maker project to get a STEM grant and a STEM grant to go to your STEAM project. And Really, I mean, hopefully one day we get past STEM and STEAM. Um, I really don't like the phrase STEM because it became such a shorthand that even even elementary school kids use it. Like, I'm going to STEM class. That means nothing, right? And then many schools are adding in the R for reading or the C for computer science or another E for environmentalism. And at some point, it's alphabet soup. So I would say, where is this going? Well, you know, it's really going to holistic, everything is engaged, hopefully project-based, hopefully hopefully, you know, a little bit more individualized learning. But there isn't one place it should go. I firmly believe that not everybody learns the exact same way. And we never want to say this is the best way for a kid to learn. There might be a this is the best way for this kid to learn or that kid. But we need that those options of different ways. It's that diversity of thought and experience that, again, is where we get the ideas for those things that we create. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the things that I have an aversion to with STEM and, and STEAM is the, the idea of solving problems. Um, 
And, and I think this is connected to what you were talking about with creating citizens and, and living a good life. Um, is is this idea that per, perhaps we aren't solving problems and we're creating problems, or perhaps um, you know we should we should kind of think a little bit more about whether or not we should do something before we actually act. I, you know, there's a lot of kind of early talk about this in in the design world, um, you know, of teaching students not to solve problems, but to identify whether they should do anything at all. Um, I, I read that you teach in an, an environmental sustainability and innovation course. Um, and there seems to be some relationship there, in, in my mind, I would wonder at least, um, between uh, questioning or, or thinking about holistically how we go about making things and in order to be more intentional about it. What do you, what do you, what do you teach in that class? What's, what's up with that? Well, actually, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with how it started is when I started at University of St. Thomas in 2006, my main teaching focus was on machine design. And in machine design, I teach the literal, or I taught the literal nuts and bolts of engineering. Actually, I had I, my mentor, um, and then thankfully a dear friend, um, had been my machine design instructor at MIT was Woody Flowers. Uh, who, was in, who was the co-founder of First Robotics. And I loved that class. And when I went off to teach at St. Thomas, I was teaching something very similar. Students you know, get a challenge and have to build something by the end of the semester and have a celebration. But I, I started to wrestle with the idea that you know, there, were, there, there was a lot of waste made in the process of learning this. And what was my responsibility as the instructor? And so the more I delve, dove into that, the more I didn't know. Um, so I went back to school. Um, I did a graduate certificate program at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, MCAD, in environmental sustainability and innovation. Uh, no, that's my class. Sorry. Um, what is that class? That class, the certificate was in sustainable design. Um, and, you know, taking classes on life cycle analysis and whole systems thinking. And it really was, I, I didn't want to do a disservice to my students. Um, if I'm going to teach design, I have to make sure that I'm looking at all the ethical sides of it. So you know, put, my, put myself through back to school uh, to learn that material and really then be able to integrate it into my classes. So in the class that you mentioned, it's, it's a business class, but it's actually open to engineers, um, environmental sustainability and innovation. And it's looking at the environmental impact of really the built world. Um, and how can, how can you wrestle and account for the intricacies of that? Uh, it, it's not so easy to do a life cycle assessment. The more you dive in, you need to know so many things. And if you if you are looking at you know, a product, well, how did it get here? What what type of train was used or what kind of truck? And that actually impacts maybe the carbon offset. But do we want to be looking at the carbon offset or do we actually care more about water eutrophication? Um, and, you know, what about this carbon offset or those are the those are the issues that we wrestle with in that class. Um, and it's a beginning class um, in that it probably I always tell my students in that course that I hope they leave with more questions than they answered with. Uh, and I was going to I'm going to give you more questions and I'm going to give you answers. But this is your planet. So this is an important class for you to wrestle with. Uh, and it's such a joy to have a mix of engineers and business students in the same class, because that isn't that isn't common uh, in U.S. education. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the hardest classes to teach because I feel like there is no textbook. It changes every day, particularly in the last couple of years, something could change in the EPA and that would affect my class for the next, you know, the next lecture. Um, but those students, you know, part of their, part of their assignment is actually to, they do a lot of, they do an LCA and they do a research project on a company and they have to come up with a business idea, but they also every week have to find a news article related to some topic of environmental sustainability that is interesting to them. 
and just post it. And they keep a little log for themselves of every week, this one article that jumped out to them. So they're creating a, re a reading list that they can go peek at someone else's, but also just getting themselves in the habit of realizing that this is an evolving thing. Our understanding of environmental issues is evolving and our corporate responses are evolving. And you don't take one class and then leave it, but instead you need to be a constant consumer of information. Yeah, we're, um, gosh, I, so much I wanted to dig into you here, but we're running up on the hour. <laughs> one, one thing I did want to touch on is, um, I would love to talk to you about this some other time, I suppose, but uh, we, I'm actually organizing a, um, a study abroad where we're going to be studying rewilding with our students, which is the idea mm -hmm. of, yeah, okay. So, so you know, removing um, things that limit animal, you know, wildlife to, to move about the, the natural environment or getting rid of dams and, and so forth and connecting that back to, to design and, and questioning these sorts of things. So I would love to audit your, your class at some point um, to, to get some more ideas of, of, of how, to, how to do something like, like well, that. Well, I've been very fortunate that one of the companies I work with is Lego. And so I've gotten to go out to Berlin a couple of times, Berlin a couple of times. And there you'll, you'll see that the bridges, the grass bridges over the highways that the animals can move. And Lego actually is doing a lot of sustainability and changing their business practices. So maybe I'll take your class if you'll take mine. <laughs> we'll trade. So, so I've got I've got one thing that I wanted to to kind of hear hear your thoughts on, and then um, I want to you know give you some time to plug whatever it is that you're talk about, whatever it is that you're working on, or or share any final thoughts. But you you say um, makers are playful. Don't estimate underestimate smiling. What? Why smiling? What is it about smiling? It's hard to it's hard to assess a smile. Like if I build something and I smile, like you can't grade me on my smile. But I said that a little bit tongue in cheek. But there's actually a lot of research on the the physical impact of smiles, right? That 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 when you're smiling, the chemicals that are released and like smiling is actually good for your health. And we don't really talk often. So when I define play, actually, I, I should throw this in. I have a checklist and I literally have a checklist. When I do a new project, there are four elements that have to go into it if it's going to be something that I consider completely playful. It has to have joy. And I would say that's the smile. That's the ice cream cone, right? It has to have whimsy. That's the slightly ridiculous aspect of it. If we're talking ice cream cones, then the joy is the fact you got ice cream, but the whimsy is that we put um, cotton candy on top. <laughs> you also need surprise. Like knowing you're getting ice cream is awesome, but it's even cooler if that ice cream just appears. And then the last one is new people. How do you bring in new people? And you know, maybe it's that you went to an ice cream parlor that has a really interesting backstory. Actually, one of my favorite ice cream parlors in the Twin Cities is is is, is run by a Palestinian chef friend of mine. And you know, learning about the stories behind the flavors. So that first one, though, joy. It it is the smile. It's that in everything you do. Oh my gosh, I think I'm about to quote Mary Poppins. Right? There's an element of fun. Right? Can we can we make something? Can you bring a smile to an engineering class? You know, I, I, the, one of the earliest classes where we applied this was a dynamics course, so the study of forces in motion. But mm -hmm. instead of doing the standard lab with springs in the basement, we partnered with a circus school. And so if the students were learning about um, harmonic oscillation, I put them on bungee cords and had them jump up a trapeze and they were the oscillating mass. Or if we were learning about pendulums, I put them on a flying trapeze. And I would say like the students were smiling during their homework. They were working harder and doing, they put more hours in that class than maybe it was what they were expecting, but they were smiling while doing it. And if you're smiling while doing it, you're more likely to do it. 
that's this is, that's that's like one of the most wonderful ways to to close out <laughs> uh, these these interviews that I've done. That's that's excellent. Um, so, Emory, is there anything that you wanted to uh, to tell people about? I know you've got Playfest coming up. Are there other things that you wanted to leave folks with? Yeah, I, mean, I guess I would just leave with you're all invited to Playfest, but also you're also just invited to reach out um, as hopefully it was evidence. A big part of our work is collaboration. And I, I sincerely actually enjoy hearing from people and we respond to every email that the lab gets. So I, I, I will leave on that, that my, my, my inbox is open. Emery, right. thank you so much for, for joining me and all of us and telling us about everything you do. And I appreciate um, all of your time that you gave us. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to This Should Work. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please give us a like and share with your friends. There's 25 more of these out there on the internet somewhere, I suppose. As always, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Overcast, whatever. And until next time, keep making. All right. Thank you.